0: welcome to the sex and psychology podcast i am your host dr justin laymiller i am a social psychologist and research fellow at the kinsey institute and author of the book tell me what you want the science of sexual desire and how it can help you improve your sex life this is the final installment of a four-part series on the science of porn as we discussed in the last episode there's a small minority of folks who seem really distressed about their porn use. For some of these individuals, the root cause of their problem can be traced back to moral conflicts surrounding porn use. So, porn, per se, isn't the problem for them. It's the shame and guilt they experience when they use it because they're not abiding by their internal moral standards. However, on the other hand, some people truly have compulsive sexual tendencies that lead to problems with porn. They don't have moral qualms about using porn. The problem for them is that they have difficulty regulating porn use and other sexual behaviors. They just feel out of control. These folks have what's known as compulsive sexual behavior disorder. So let's talk about it. In today's show, we're going to dive into the history of this diagnosis and the controversy surrounding how to define what constitutes too much when it comes to sexual behavior and when it crosses a line. We're also going to discuss what compulsive sexual behavior looks like in real life, how common it is, and how it's treated. I am joined once again by Dr. Joshua Grubbs, a clinical psychologist and associate professor in the clinical psychology program at Bowling Green State University. Josh will soon be joining the faculty in the clinical science PhD program at the University of New Mexico in the Center for Alcohol, Substance Use, and Addiction. Josh conducts research on addiction, personality, and morality. He has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles, and he has received more than $1.5 million in grants to support his research. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Enhance your sexual performance with FirmTech. Check out their tech ring, which is designed to give you harder, longer lasting erections while also tracking your erectile fitness. Wear it at night to monitor nocturnal erections and cardiovascular health, or wear it during lovemaking for a boost in the bedroom. Unlike other erection rings, FirmTech's is easy to put on, adjustable to your comfort, and it can go on whether you're hard or soft. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been a trusted source for scientific knowledge and research on critical issues in sexuality, gender, and reproduction for over 75 years. Learn about recent research, events, and student activities at America's premier Sex Research Institute in their recently released annual report on their website. Find it over at KinseyInstitute.org and be sure to follow them on social media at Kinsey Institute. Okay, Josh, in our previous conversation, we talked all about how people often struggle with porn use when they have a moral conflict with it. That is, they're engaging in a behavior that is incompatible with their moral beliefs, and this creates distress. However, not everyone who experiences problems related to their porn use is religious or has a moral conflict. So let's talk about that. In the psychological literature, these folks are often described in terms of being hypersexual, as having compulsive sexual behavior, or as experiencing dysregulation. And the literature can be a little confusing at times because these terms are all used interchangeably. So as a starting point, what's your preferred terminology here? How do you think we should be labeling or talking about this issue? I
1: do actually quite a, do like quite a bit the ICD-11 term of compulsive sexual behavior disorder. It is a mouthful in the literature. We often say CSBD because we love acronyms. We're academics. We love acronyms. But also because it's, it's less of a mouthful than compulsive sexual behavior disorder. But I do think that referring to it as compulsive sexual behavior or compulsive sexual behavior disorder makes the most sense because it doesn't presume that it's an impulse control disorder or that it's an addiction or that it's a trauma response or that it's shame or moral. It's literally just describing some people feel compelled to engage in sexual behaviors to such an extent that they experience problems because
0: yeah thank you for sharing that that makes a lot of sense to me now the literature on hypersexuality and compulsive sexual behavior is a somewhat messy area not just because people are using different terms but also because they're defining things in very different ways some folks have tried to come up with objective definitions where they try to quantify what constitutes too much when it comes to sexual behavior. So for example, they'll define it in terms of the specific number of times you masturbate per day or per week, or how much sex you're having on a regular basis, how much porn you're using, or even the number of orgasms that you have in a given week. However, this approach is problematic, so please tell us why it doesn't work very well for people to try and come up with a specific amount of sexual behavior that's too high that in and of itself represents a problem.
1: I think there's, you know, a couple of reasons for it. One, that desire to look at a count or an amount as definitional is born out of an addiction understanding of sexual behavior, right? Right. If you tell me that you are having 60 drinks a week, I don't need to know anything else to tell you you have an alcohol use disorder. Something is going on that is not safe. That is not good. It doesn't matter if it's 30 drinks two days in a row or 60 over the whole week. That amount of alcohol in a given week, that's a problem. And we know that. That's how substance use disorders work. Quantity does matter. It's not the only factor, but it is one of the factors. Sex, for one, is a biological drive that is hardwired into the species. Quite literally, without it, we don't survive as a species. It's fundamental to reproduction. And using, treating that as an inherently the same way that we would treat alcohol or drugs, I think that that's a problem by itself. I think the other piece is that what is normal sexuality varies dramatically person to person and even within person over time. Frankly, and this is playing into stereotypes, but the number of orgasms that a 16-year-old boy might have in a given week versus a 70-year-old man might have in a given week are probably just not the same. And using the same standard to judge both of those categories seems fundamentally wrong. And then there's a stigma aspect of this as well. So a lot of the historical definitions of what we might call compulsive sexual behavior, looking at count totals in particular, is extremely biased against anyone with a sexual orientation or a sexual behavior set that is allowing them to have more of that. And so, quite frankly, by a lot of these definitions, and you see this in some past literature as well, men who have sex with men in particular are going to be labeled as compulsive because they're having more frequent sexual encounters than the average heterosexual man or than the average heterosexual woman. Even though within that culture right within that group of men, there's nothing impairing about it. There's nothing they may they could be having safe sex in the context of I mean, could be in relationships, could be in casual encounters, but in the context that's not causing any problems in their lives. But because they had X number of partners last week or X number of sexual encounters, despite everything being safe and life going as well, we're gonna call them say they have a disorder. And that just doesn't feel right to me. That doesn't seem like the right way to approach sexuality or or how we would diagnose a disorder as well.
0: Yeah, I think part of the appeal for people to have like a specific number that they can peg to these things is in part that they want to have something objective that's easy to say, okay, either there's a problem or not. But that kind of thinking is a bit simplistic when it comes to this because it's ultimately about is it actually causing problems? for the individual you make a really important point that there's wide individual variability in people's sex lives and sexual behaviors and i'm thinking of a paper i read not that long ago that tried to quantify what is too much you know when it comes to sex what the definition of hypersexuality should be and their argument was that it would be seven or more orgasms per week so basically an orgasm a day would be enough to get you into that hypersexual category. And there was a subsequent paper published that looked at, well, how many orgasms are people actually having in a given week? And I think it found that somewhere around one in five men and one in 10 women report having seven or more orgasms per week. So if you use the definition like that, you'd be categorizing a huge swath of the population as having a problem, when in reality, they may not have any problems at all. So ultimately, it's really more about the subjective impact than it is about the specific amount or quantity of sexual behavior that's happening.
1: Yes, certainly. And when you look at the diagnostic criteria for compulsive sexual behavior disorder, they do not list anything like a count. They don't list anything like a certain number of orgasms or sexual encounters. They don't even list an amount of time associated with it. What they say is these compulsions are there, the behavior is there, And the frequency of the behavior, of of the compulsion, is causing functional impairment. And there's this qualifier in most psychiatric diagnoses that there must be functional impairment, which is the psychiatric or psychological way of saying this is causing major problems in your life. So again, if you're having 7 to 20 orgasms a week, either by yourself or with partners, in a way that's not causing problems in your day-to-day life, I cannot imagine a scenario in which that should be accurately considered a disorder. You're just obviously enjoying quite a bit of sexual encounters or or sexual activity, but that doesn't mean that something is wrong. It means that you're enjoying quite a number of sexual encounters or activities.
0: Yes, I agree with that. Now, the DSM has long had a diagnostic category for problematic low sexual desire. We're talking Mm -hmm. here about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's kind of the psychiatry bible for folks who might not be familiar with it. And in the DSM, it's known as hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Technically, the diagnostic labels have different names based on the gender of the patient, but they're getting at the same thing, that there can be this problematically low level of desire. However, there's no corresponding category for problematic high sexual desire in the DSM. So why is that?
1: I think there's a a couple of reasons, depending on how you you think about it. I mean, I think one... Hypersexual disorder, the notion of hypersexuality, I mean, it it was proposed, right, for the DSM-5, and it it went through a field trial, but it was ultimately excluded, right? But again, it's hard to define what would be objectively too much sexual behavior if we don't have a benchmark for that. Now, low sexual desire is a little easier to define. Even that, though, I I frankly do have some problems with the diagnosis because I think it's almost always – used as a diagnosis put on one person because their desires don't match their partners, right? We don't typically see hypoactive sexual behavior in a single person who's not sexually active, who's distressed that they don't have a sex drive. Typically speaking, hypoactive sexual drive is something that we would diagnose quite often in a um, coupled situation where one partner wants more sex than the other partner and one and that creates conflict. Leads to therapy and sort of things. So, actually, I have kind of big problems with that because it's using a mismatch in a couple to diagnose one person with a disorder. And I don't think that that's how disorders should
0: work. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that, you know, when you're talking about something like, high sex drive versus low sex drive, it's often in relation to a specific other person. And, you know, there is that tendency to pathologize. And, you know, you even see this within couples where when you have these desire discrepancies emerge, oftentimes the low desire partner is blamed for not being interested in sex, but sometimes the low desire partner is shaming the high desire partner for wanting too much sex and is labeling them as an addict so you know the blaming and shaming thing can kind of go in either direction in those cases but it's ultimately in those instances about that discrepancy between those two individuals not necessarily that one partner has a problem and the other one doesn't
1: Yeah, no, I think that that's accurate. And I do think that this is an issue that anyone that's doing couples therapy or or couple sex therapy has to wrestle with quite a lot is that uh, it's not all, but quite a large proportion of the sexual dysfunctions we see within couples or sexual conflicts we see within couples do fundamentally boil down to desire discrepancies. And as a culture, we, we just don't have a norm around being accepting of that. You know, it, it is quite possible to be accepting of desire discrepancy and compromising and working that out in a way that's healthy for you as a couple. But we're more often kind of cultured to say, well, no, it's this person's fault because they have no sex drive and they should, or this, this person's fault because they are a crazy sex addict instead of just accepting we're different. And maybe we need to find balance or, and explore ways that we
0: can be functional together. Yeah, absolutely. So the DSM does not have a listing for problematically high levels of sexual desire. And in part, that's also just because there's been a lot of controversy in the field about what would actually constitute problematic high sexual drive and how would you define it and so it's been this ongoing controversy for a long time now unlike the dsm the icd the international classification of diseases does have a diagnostic category for problematic high sexual desire this used to be called excessive sexual drive and it was subdivided into nymphomania and satiriasis depending on the gender of the person and it's my understanding that this category was replaced with the term compulsive sexual behavior disorder in the most recent edition of the icd So what is compulsive sexual behavior disorder, and what's the criteria by which it's diagnosed?
1: Yeah, and so I think it's worth noting that compulsive sexual behavior disorder, in a sense, certainly did replace that hyperactive sexual drive on diagnosis. But compulsive sexual behavior disorder requires that a person is engaging in behaviors. And so desire, drive, thought, fantasy is not part of the criteria now. What is in the criteria is an excessive engagement in sexual behaviors to a degree or extent to which that it's causing functional impairment in a person's life, typically in the the form of lasting physical harm to oneself or one partner, lasting emotional harm. And so this is kind of a gray area of what does emotional harm look like. Um, but typically we're talking about engaging in serial infidelity that's uh, infidelity inherently is non-consensual. Right. And so I'm not talking about an open relationship. I'm talking about monogamous relationship where someone is without consent, engaging in other relationships. That type of thing might be that. Or functional impairment and maybe vocational, like losing jobs, things like that. A couple of important specifiers, though. One, the behavior has to be there, right? It is not just thinking about sex or or being obsessed with sex or feeling like your sex drive is really high, behavior has to be there. And two, the distress and impairment associated with it cannot be attributed to moral incongruence, right? So it cannot be that you're engaging in sexual behavior at a low frequency, but you feel really bad about it because your morals say that it's wrong, and then you get this diagnosis. Like the criteria, it's literally the only diagnosis in the entire ICD, in the entire International Classification of Diseases. This one diagnosis says, note, distress that is entirely related to moral judgments about sexual behaviors does not qualify for this diagnosis.
0: Thanks for sharing that, and that's really fascinating to know in and of itself. This episode of the Sex and Psychology Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. As I've said on this show many times, in order to get what we want out of life and our relationships, we have to know what we want and need. But sometimes we don't have the necessary self understanding until we've really had a chance to think and talk things through. BetterHelp can connect you with a licensed therapist who can meet you where you are and start that process of self discovery. You can learn a lot about yourself while also cultivating practical skills, from learning how to set boundaries, to becoming more empowered to advocate for yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's 100% online and flexible to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist, but you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sexandpsych today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot com, slash sex and psych. So, when we're talking about compulsive sexual behavior disorder, tell us a little bit about what this might look like in real life. So, for example, some people might think that it necessarily has to have, say, a fetishistic element to it. You know, oftentimes when sexual disorders are diagnosed, it's often in the context of some type of uncommon or rare sexual behavior. So tell us a little bit about some of the ways that this might play out in people's real lives, whether it's with porn, masturbation, partnered sexual behavior. What could it look like?
1: There's a, a wide variety of behaviors that could fall into it. It could be solitary sexual behaviors like masturbation and pornography viewing. It could also be partnered sexual behaviors, as well, so what we might see in the solitary example would be someone that is spending either excessive time every day viewing pornography to the point that they're, you know, doing it at work and it's getting them in trouble at work, or they're not spending time with loved ones or friends because they're caught up doing, viewing pornography. Another example might be someone that doesn't view very much, but then maybe on the weekend is viewing for. 12, 16 hours over the course of the weekend, and it has isolated themselves from other relationships, from accomplishing other needs. And again, those are not benchmarks. Those are literally just ballpark rough estimates. The key being is that they're engaging in that behavior so much that it's getting in the way of other important relationships or responsibilities. So yes, if you're viewing pornography so frequently that you're not able to spend time with loved ones that you care about or that your relationship is kind of falling apart not because you view porn conceptually but because you're spending so much time viewing porn that you're not spending time with your partner that's one way that CSPD might show up compulsive sexual behavior and partner sexual behaviors it's a similar type of thing is it causing harm you know if you're having multiple new partners a week every week you're engaging so safely within confines that are not interfering with work and other meaningful relationships, that's not compulsive sexual behavior disorder. But if you're, having multiple partners a week. It's not safe. It's kind of reckless. You're putting yourself and these prospective partners at risk of of STIs. You're in a situation where it's getting in the way of work. You're neglecting responsibilities. It's getting in the way of your relationships because you can't stop going out and finding new partners. That might meet criteria for it. you still need a full assessment, but it really is looking at, is this sexual behavior getting in the way, the frequency of it in particular, getting in the way of me living the life that I would like to be living. That's kind of the starting point. And then you would need to seek help at that point, maybe, and talk to someone about what's going on. And is it compulsive sexual behavior disorder or is it something else?
0: Yeah, I think those are all really important points. You know, so when we're talking about compulsive sexual behavior it can be a compulsion for almost any behavior that you can think of. You know, you can have a compulsion for a kink or fetish activity, or it could be for oral sex or something else that is, you know, very normative that most people engage in. It's more about, you know, what is the impact this is having on you than the specific type of behavior itself. Now, do we have any sense of how common compulsive sexual behavior disorder is? Is there a gender difference? You know, so what do we know about how many people might have this and who's most likely to be diagnosed with it?
1: So we do know from a number of national studies, the U.S., Poland, Hungary, I believe there was one in Germany as well. We do know that about, I'm going to be very careful with my wording here, so I'm going to say a higher percentage than what we think is real. Let me explain that. We know about 10% of men and 3 to 5% of women have concerns that their sexual behaviors might be excessive or out of control. So I want to be clear that I'm not saying that 10% of women and I mean of men and three to five percent of women have out-of-control sexual behaviors. That's the numbers that think that they might, right? We've talked previously or a little bit earlier about this moral incongruence aspect of people getting distressed about normal sexual desires. When we kind of parse that out and look more deeply we don't have good data on the actual prevalence. I think if I had to guess, I would say probably between one and 3% of men at most and between a half percent and 2% of women. But that's really just guessing based kind of on clinical intuition and, and what we see in the data where high frequency behaviors are also coinciding with feelings of addiction. And we kind of parse it out that way. We're seeing a much smaller number. But it, anyone that tells you that it's it more than, I'd say, 3% of men and 1% or 2% of women, they're straying far out from what the data actually
0: tell us. Yeah. So when we're talking about something like this, it is really important to make that distinction between is this people reporting that they think that they have a problem? Because that could mean different things. You know, maybe they could be meeting diagnostic criteria, but it might also just be, like you said, the moral incongruence, or they're in a relationship where there's just a discrepancy between what the partners want when it comes to sex. So taking those numbers and then applying them to compulsive sexual behavior more broadly is kind of a dicey thing. I've seen sources that are kind of all over the place with this Some of the big national health websites report something around, they think, 5% of people might meet this criteria. So it sounds like those estimates might be a bit higher than what they might actually be. So the truth is that we don't know for sure what the prevalence is. And that's also in part because it's kind of a newer diagnostic category. It's only been around for a few years. So eventually, we'll probably have better data on this. But for now, we suspect it's probably a pretty rare thing.
1: Correct, I, I do agree that it is probably a pretty rare thing and it's gonna take years of work to actually parse out exactly the numbers we're looking at.
0: So how is compulsive sexual behavior disorder treated? What might a typical treatment approach look like and is it effective? This is one
1: of my, my pet rants when I'm at conferences or when I'm talking to other scientists is that sex addiction and compulsive sexual behavior have been written about for 40 years there are more manuals telling people how to treat sex addiction than I could list off in, you know, half an hour. There are dozens and dozens of these books, so many of them claiming to be the foolproof ways to treat compulsive sexual behavior or sexual addictions. We have no solid empirically based treatments for compulsive sexual behavior disorder. No treatment that has been systematically evaluated in the way that we've evaluated treatments for substance use disorders and addiction, for depression, for anxiety, for post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have treatments that work, but I'm saying we don't have the evidence-based treatments that have kind of stood up and said, these are the ones that we know work across situations. Now, having said that, I do find, generally speaking, the approaches that have worked for me clinically with clients have been acceptance and commitment-based approaches, which are about really working to accept who you are as a person while striving to live in accordance with the values that you have, as well as mindfulness-based relapse prevention approaches, which does come out of addiction treatment, but it is learning to sit with your, your desires, urges, and cravings and observe them and experiencing them without acting on them. And so I do find both of those very effective. What I very much push very hard against are 12-step approaches, Although 12-step has its place particularly in substance use recovery for a lot of people, I have yet to see evidence that 12-steps in compulsive sexual behavior disorders is a safe and effective way to approach sexual behavior.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating when you're talking about this, how people have been writing about sex addiction and compulsive sexual behavior for many, many decades, You know, almost a half century. So why don't we have more in the way of evidence-based treatments for this? Like you would think in that span of time, <laughs> there would be a lot of literature out there on this.
1: So multiple factors, right? I think one of them is that the people that have been writing about it haven't been researchers. They've been clinicians, clinicians that have treatments and practices and recovery centers that are predicated on treating these disorders. And well, it's hard to have people that are financially invested in one thing take an objective, systematic look at it, right? It's the reason that, you know, tobacco companies funded studies of nicotine harms were never really good. They're pretty invested in the outcome being a certain way. So these people aren't necessarily researchers and they're invested in the outcome coming out a certain way. So that's one factor. The other factor is that there hasn't, until 2022, there wasn't a diagnosis on any recorded manual. And that could even subsume this disorder. Compulsive sexual behavior disorder was the first diagnosis that meets this. And so that, that happened in 2022, which means that historically, without a diagnosis, it's really hard to get funding to do this kind of research. So in the U.S., the National Institutes of Mental Health, the National Institute of Health, National Institute of Drug and Alcohol Use, the National Institute of Alcohol and Associated Disorders, right? So all of these, the national institutes that fund all of this really great mental health research, all this really great addiction research, they don't fund research related to compulsive sexual behavior. They never have. Now that might change in the future, but You know, when you look at the literal billions and billions that have been spent funding research on addictions, and then you look at, quite literally, almost zero dollars funding compulsive sexual behavior in the U.S., it's pretty easy to understand why there's a, a difference in the quality of evidence that we have available.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's so bonkers to me in so many ways that, you know, we've been talking about this for such a long time, we know it can be a problem. Why aren't we investing in, you know, finding ways to treat it? But, you know, when it comes to getting grant funding for sex related stuff, we know that there's already roadblocks in the way there. But when you didn't have a diagnostic label or category for something specifically, that was also a roadblock because you have to be able to clearly identify and point to the problem so that you can get the funding to be able to further study it. So, you know, there have certainly been a lot of complicating factors there. Now, I know you said that, you know, we don't have a ton of research in terms of like evidence-based treatments, but there are things that can help somebody who has compulsive sexual behavior disorder. So let's talk a little bit about how you can find help. What are some of the things first that you would advise that people look for or run away from when they're looking for help when it comes to this disorder?
1: I think I would be very cautious And so I don't want to say this universally, but I would be cautious about religiously affiliated treatment centers associated with this. Being a religious therapist, you can do a lot of great work, but a lot of religiously based therapy centers, and there's a lot of them in the U.S. In the U.S. Christian counseling, whether that's, you know, evangelically affiliated or catholically affiliated or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints affiliated, regardless of what it is. Many of them, their approaches to treating sexual behaviors are going to come back to what is considered appropriate within those church contexts. So it's going to be very heteronormative, very monogamy oriented, very anti masturbation even. So if it's a religious group, I think having a frank conversation about what sexual values they think are okay and healthy is important. If someone is open minded about sexuality or, or of the opinion that their sexual values are not what matters for your well-being, then there there may be a path forward. But in general, if it's a religious group, be cautious, right? Not necessarily run away, but be cautious. Beyond that, I do think it is about actually having a frank conversation with the therapist, asking about what is healthy sexuality from their perspective. I, I am a firm believer, as a clinical psychologist, that clients absolutely have the right to interrogate the therapist that they're working with about what their values are. Now, a good therapist, can say my values are X, but in the context of therapy, my values for what we're doing here are this, right? So I can say in my personal life, I believe this for me, but that doesn't mean anything about what I think can be healthy for you. And I think that that's an important thing to see in a therapist, that they can separate those two things. Beyond that, uh, the only other big cautionary thing that I would say is be wary of residential inpatient treatment programs for compulsive sexual behavior because they're going to be outrageously expensive. And as I've already said, there isn't necessarily the evidence basis there. And I think paying thirty dollars or $40,000 to go somewhere in the middle of the mountains or the beach to recover from compulsive sexual behavior disorder, although that might be needed for some people. I would be very skeptical about it. You know, anytime we're looking at that kind of profit margin going on without an evidence basis around it, a lot of red flags go off for me. If you have a therapist that is genuinely invested in helping you feel better and live congruent with the values that you have, I think you're in a good starting place. And I don't think it takes a hugely special toolkit to do that. But I do think it involves kind of interrogating the therapist. So I wish I could say, Google this list and you'll find a good one. And it's just not that simple. It's about having a conversation with a therapist. And if it doesn't seem like a fit, it's okay to walk away. I tell people this all the time. If you and your therapist, it's not working for you, it's okay to say, hey, I'm going to try something else.
0: So we're running short on time, but I have one last question for you when it comes to treatment seeking, which is, you know, for folks who might not have access to therapy, it might not be covered by their insurance. Is there anything in the realm of self-help that you might recommend for people to check out?
1: There are, um, and it depends a lot on the groups or, or the traditions you're, or you're associated with. I am a fan. There's a, a colleague of mine. He's actually did some work and some training with a previous guest on your show, Dr. Nicole Prouse. But this, this colleague's name is by the name of Cameron Staley. He does a lot of self-help online groups online self-recovery sorts of things. He's written about this kind of stuff extensively. And his approach is based on acceptance and commitment therapy sort of things. And I, I think that it actually is quite useful. Beyond that, I would be very cautious about just Googling help for pornography problems or help for compulsive sexual behavior because there are a lot of advocacy groups that kind of prey on that. Looking for someone that is tied into a type of therapy, something like acceptance and commitment therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, while not preaching their own values to you or saying, you know, you must be abstinent or you, you must be heterosexual or things like that. If you can find groups that aren't telling you those messages and are using a more, more established type of therapy, I think you'll be in a good place.
0: Yeah, so I think it's important to be mindful of the fact that there is a lot of snake oil out there when it comes to treating sexual problems. So definitely do your research and don't just go for the first thing that pops up on Google. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Josh. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, definitely. So my website is joshuagrubbsphd.com. You can also generally find me on Twitter at joshuagrubbsphd. I'm currently, you know, at Bowling Green State University as a faculty member, although later this year I'll be transitioning to the University of New Mexico. But generally speaking, if you just literally Google Joshua Grubb's PhD, almost all of those options are going to pop up, whether it's my website, my Twitter, or my academic uh, affiliation pages. Those are all be right there.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being here. And I'll be sure to include links for everything in the show notes. All right. Thank you and thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of this podcast visit my website sex and psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where i hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show you can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates i'm on twitter at justin laymiller and instagram at justin j laymiller also be sure to check out my book tell me what you want thanks again for listening until next time